Good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5 this morning. Luke chapter 5. This is the third sermon in a series that we had been preaching on the glory of Christ. And when you came in this morning, you should have gotten a a, a card uh, that explains to you the vision of the church that the elders have been praying through and working on, that we feel like the direction that God's called us as a church to go into. And it's it's, um, proclaiming the glory of Christ, and you'll see transforming lives there. And those two things we've been talking about very much, haven't we, from 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that how are lives transformed? It's by a proclamation and it's an experience of the glory of Christ. So we said over the last two weeks that this is what you see in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that that people's eyes are veiled. You might say this is the deadness of their heart to, to beholding the glory of Christ. So they might see him as a good person, they might see him as a prophet, they might see him as a fine teacher, but do they see him as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the one who died to forgive their sins? Not unless the Holy Spirit works in their heart. And 2 Corinthians says, then the veil is removed, and there's a new freedom, and the freedom there is to behold who Christ is, and as they do, the text says that their life is transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, therefore, for the believer, you were converted by beholding the glory of Christ. No one in this room is a believer who has not seen that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God their personal Savior who died and rose again. That's all His glory, and you know that by faith in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, that's the same thing in eternity. So the glory of Christ transforms your life now when you're converted. In eternity, when you see Christ face to face, 1 John tells us that your life will be transformed into His image. So what changes you in eternity? It's the glory of Christ. And for the believer... How are you sanctified? How do you grow? An ongoing, intimate, knowing, relationally of Jesus Christ. Experiencing more of who He is. And so this morning, we're just going to give an example of of what that looked like in the life of the disciples. So if you'll look with me at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 11. Now, Jesus' fame is spreading. He is traveling, preaching in his home area, Galilee, showing that he is more than just a preacher. He's cast out demons. He's in the synagogue. He's been preaching Capernaum. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so the crowds are starting to gather to see and hear this traveling rabbi, this traveling teacher. And chapter 5 introduces a new section where he begins to call his disciples And Jesus then is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. The the fishermen are there. They've been fishing all night. They had an unprofitable evening of fishing. They're cleaning and drying their nets, getting ready to go home and have a meal. 
They're probably discouraged because they're not bringing anything home with them. Nothing to take to market. And Jesus preaches. He displays His glory, His sovereignty over creation. And then He invites them to follow. So if you would, read with me. Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of, how do you say that? Yes, Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them. That's another way of saying Galilee. It's the same lake. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, What a life-changing experience it is for us to behold, to see once more the glory, the greatness, the nature of God revealed in the person of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and so it was here for the disciples. And I pray now for every believer here in this room who has this Holy Spirit dwelling in them, Lord, that through Your preached Word that You would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and understand more of their sovereign Lord, who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, sovereign over all things, that they might trust like Peter here and want to follow and are willing to leave all things that they love and care for if Christ calls them to. Father, we thank You so much for these missionaries who have left their comfort, who are coming here to testify. Lord, may we love them well while they're here over these next few weeks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Being a disciple of Jesus is is costly because it means... Surrendering the desires of your life to Jesus' desires for your life. It is costly because Jesus calls all of His disciples to to actually follow Him. To follow Him. And we never know then where He's going to lead you. 
And so for someone to truly have the faith to follow Jesus, they have to first behold His glory and recognize that He is the Son of God with authority over all things and therefore I can trust Him and I can die to myself and my own desires and I can follow. Now here's where the world is very divided. All people cry out in one form or another, where is the glory? Where is the thing that will satisfy me that I was made for? And if they're not believers, they look at Christ and they see nothing that will satisfy them. But the believer, when he sees Christ, he sees the glory of God who became man. There's a great story in the Scripture that... that shows this divide, it's when the 2 Samuel 6, the ark has been returned by the Philistines and it's coming into Jerusalem, the place where God's glory had dwelt with His people. And there was a great celebration as the ark came into the city. And you probably know the story, David was leaping and dancing before the Lord with all of his might. Psalm 63.2 kind of describes it. It says this, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David is beholding the glory of the Lord, and he's full of joy as he sees God's presence coming back into his people. But there is another, Saul's daughter Michael, David's wife. She pays no attention to the ark or God's presence coming back with his people. All she sees is her husband embarrassing her. She didn't get it. She despised David for his heart. Instead of worshiping, she was full of anger and bitterness. She knew nothing of the love of the glory and the presence of God. Now that's a great picture. God's glory always has an effect on the life of the believer. For David, who loves God's greatness, when he sees it and the presence of God is coming back to dwell with his people, he dances, he shouts with joy, so much so that his wife was embarrassed. For Michael, all she sees is the shame of a king dancing with too few clothes on, (laughs) which might embarrass a few wives in here as well. In Luke 5, Christ commands Peter and the fishermen to put the boats out. Drop your nets. Now, this is after they had caught nothing all night, which was the best time to fish. They have a -a once-in-a-lifetime catch. Peter then beholds the glory of Christ. This is not just a teacher. This is not just a miracle worker. This man has power over the seas. He is the Messiah of God. Now, then and only then do we see transformation. He sees his own sin and repents as he sees the greatness of Jesus and wants to follow. Now, what was the glory that he beheld? Well, John describes it really well in John 1.14, in the beginning of his letter. He says this, And we saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying, why did we believe? Why did we follow? He was there. Because we saw the glory of God. 
And it was full of grace and truth. All the treasures of God's grace we saw in Christ. All the treasures of His truth we saw in Christ. And when Peter sees it, he believes, he repents, and he follows. So here's the main idea this morning. Life transformation happens when we behold the glory of Christ. Life transformation happens from non-believer to believer, from believer to healthier believer, happens when we behold the glory of Christ. So there's two things we want to see. First is beholding the glory of Christ, and the second is responding as we see it. Okay? Look at verse 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Beholding the glory of Christ. Notice this. Tired fishermen. I'm going to read those once more. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, a region where fishing was the major industry. It could be a lucrative business, but sometimes it was dry. Lots of fishermen there. And recently we've, we found a boat at the bottom because you're thinking, okay, they filled this boat. Well, how big was the boat? Well, we found a boat at the bottom of the Lake Galilee that was preserved quite well, and it was 24 feet long, 8 meters and it was eight feet wide. It, it held a team of five men working it. Had a mast in the middle going up and two sets of oars. So they're not canoes. They're, they're pretty decent sized boats. And their nets that we found there as well, they would weigh over a ton. Massive. Now this morning, Peter, James, and John, all fishermen, they'd labored all night long. And they'd caught nothing. Now they're cleaning their nets and drying them out. And you have to put yourself in their shoes. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're ready for a good feed and to rest. Maybe they're discouraged because they have no money coming in that day. And notice what Jesus does. He comes down the beach. There's a huge crowd that gathers around him. They're hungry for truth. And the problem is the crowd is so big, not everybody could see him. So Jesus knows Peter because he had entered Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. He decides to teach from Peter's boat. So he tells Peter and his team, probably of five, put the boat out a bit. So they get in, they row out. Jesus sits as a teacher would do and he begins to teach. Now, it's probably the same message that he had been teaching there. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not for the righteous. It's for the sinful. Repent and believe. And then when he finishes preaching, he says to them, let down your nets. Now, that there's a plural word. It implies a crew. There's a crew on board. So, so notice the context. A carpenter, rabbi, is going to tell tired, hard-pressed fishermen who've been unsuccessful all night to drop their nets again. Which means more work, more cleaning, no rest during the day. 
it's probably the last thing that they wanted to do was go and fish again. So Peter says, Master, we toiled all night, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Verse 6 and 7. Look in your Bible with me, please. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. In other words, the harvest was so great that you had two 24-foot boats that were completely filled to the breaking point. Notice what Jesus was doing. He was letting Peter, James, and John behold His glory. He's not just a good teacher. His greatness was more than just His ability to cast out demons and to heal the sick. He had authority over creation. Even the fish obeyed His commands. And they see God in Him. Notice Jesus asked Peter to do something that he probably didn't want to do. But these are the times we see the greatness of Christ and when the most blessings come to our life. There was a minister in Scotland at the turn of last century by the name of Duncan Campbell. And Duncan Campbell was set to preach at a a series of meetings in a town in Scotland. And as he was praying and preparing for the meetings, he knew the Holy Spirit was leading him to go to the Hebrides Islands. These out-of-nowhere, not well-known little islands off the coast of Scotland. So he left. (laughs) Probably a crowd like this, he just left. He he said, I'm sorry, I've got to go, I can't preach. He makes his way to the Hebrides Islands. He comes upon a little church there. There was a cleaner, a man cleaning the church. Duncan says, what's going on here? Why are you cleaning the church and getting things prepared? What are you preparing for? The man, maybe a deacon in the church, says, We have a speaker tonight coming by the name of Duncan Campbell. And you don't want to miss it. Young Duncan Campbell says, That's me. I'm Duncan Campbell. How did you know I was coming? The man cleaning looked up and he said to him, How did you know to come? The people of the church had been hiding away and they had been praying for revival to come to their dead islands. The Holy Spirit told them to prepare these Scottish Presbyterians for Duncan Campbell. And not long after revival broke out, we know it is the Hebrides revival of 1905. Jesus often comes to us when we are tired, when we have plans. We feel certain we need to be doing something else. And He calls us to follow, to obey. And He leads us to do something hard. Something tiring, uncomfortable. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense to you. 
What we see in Luke 5 is the kingly power of Christ. And His calling of us is always mixed with His fatherly love. In other words, when Jesus asks you to do things that are hard, He is always going to do two great things in your life. First, obedience in hard times is when you will most behold and experience the glory of Christ and your life will grow like what 2 Corinthians 3 says, from one degree of glory to another. When you will get a new view of the greatness of your Savior. When you will see that He has authority over creation, over darkness, over people, over your situation. And second, these are the times that your life will be most blessed. Peter's blessings are far more than just financial as he has a big haul of fish. His faith is being built. Peter's faith was coming to a place where he knew he could follow Jesus and Jesus controlled the fish of the sea. So that even if he didn't work and he left and followed this man, that God would provide for his family. Let's go to the second point. Go from beholding the glory of Christ now to responding. Notice how they respond in verses 8 to 11. Read that once more. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. Notice this. He repents. Why would he respond to a miracle by professing his sin? It seems a little awkward, doesn't it? Why would he see, you would think he would say, Yahoo! Money in the bank! He does just the opposite. Well, two things. He must have just heard Christ's message, which probably was something like, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. But also, he's amazed. He saw the glory of God. And when people see the greatness of God, there's always one great response. They understand their own fallenness and weakness. So Peter repents in the boat at Jesus' feet. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed. Peter and his friends had been listening to Jesus. They'd been watching Jesus. You might say they'd been dating Jesus, circling Him, seeing His miracles. Yet they had not made a decision to follow Him yet. And there at His feet, they call Him Lord. And then and there, they decided that they would trust and follow Christ as His disciples. And when they brought the boats in, Peter, James, and John, they left their careers, they left their families, they left their friends, they left their synagogues or churches, and they became Jesus' disciples. Being a disciple is always costly 
Because it means surrendering your desire for your life to Jesus' desire for your life. Now notice the transformation, verse 10, and we'll finish here. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Notice, don't be afraid. Here is what God says to those people who see His glory again and again. Don't be afraid. Here is what the angel said to Mary. Don't be afraid. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. For a rabbi, the custom was to have a group of students. He taught. It was about learning from him as he traveled. Jesus then gives the invitation, come and be my disciples. Travel with me. But he doesn't say, follow me and I'll teach you. Follow me and I'll teach you great doctrine and theology. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The call is not to learn law and doctrine only, but to become something completely different. To let Jesus make you something that He wants you to be. Now on, He says, you're going to be catching men. When people come to Christ, He gives them a new direction and a new calling. He would no longer be a fisherman He's going to be an evangelist. He's going to be the bedrock of the church. And the first time we see Peter preaching, we see 3,000 people converted. The call to follow Jesus is not an invitation to come and learn cool things about theology or whatever church you attend. Or come and learn how to love people. But it's to come to Jesus and let Him make you all together something different. To give a different direction to your life. To give you a new heart, a new spirit. This is what it means to be a believer. We must notice the order of the transforming work of Christ. Peter, he heard the preaching of the Word, right? And then Peter sees and beholds the glory of Christ. And what does he do next? He repents and he believes there's an order there and Christ then makes something new out of him how do we think and live this how do we think and live this okay Rusty I understand what you're saying how do we take this from our head to under our heart well listen understanding this will change the way our church does ministry it'll change the direction You have a little card there. We've given it to you this morning. It's things that the elders have been working on. And on the top of that, you'll see a vision. What we're asking God to do in the life of our church. And it says this, proclaiming Christ's glory to transform lives. As we have prayed about it as elders, there's five major ways we're asking God to proclaim His glory and to transform lives. And they're on your card. The first thing you're going to see there is worship. These will be the mission points of our work in this church. Where we're asking God to work. First is worship. Christ-centered worship that engages the heart and the mind is what we want God to do. We refuse to have music wars in our church. This is too small of a focus. Our goal is to have worship 
that engages the heart or the affections and the mind with the greatness of who Christ is and what He's done for us on the cross. Second, community. We are committed to transforming lives through building Christ-centered community. Community is great. But what we see in so many churches is breaking up into small groups or interest groups around simply biking communities or sporting communities or fishing communities. And these can be good things. But there is no power to transform your life in a community around Troy State football. We want all our small group communities, Sunday school classes, Wednesday night, create and cultivate classes to be centered around the greatness of who our Savior is and His gospel message. Third, discipleship. We are committed to making disciples who know, love, and remain in the greatness of Christ. Fourth, outreach. Sharing the greatness of Christ at home and abroad with the least and the lost. So what does that mean? Well, I can remember being younger and doing evangelism, and I had one bullet in my gun. (laughs) I have one thing to tell someone, and if they said no, that's all I have. What we want to do is expose non-Christians to the glory of Christ by reading the Scripture with them and giving the Holy Spirit time to work. So we will be doing evangelism trainings to train you, but not just in a one-bullet system, but to reveal to people through the Scriptures the greatness of Christ because we believe they have to see it, not just to make an emotional response, but like Peter here, to repent, believe, and follow. Last, fifth thing, revival. We will seek a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, our church, our city, and our world. Did you know that all great revivals outside of the Pentecostal revival in the last 300 years came out of the Reformed and Presbyterian church. Sometimes because of the abuse of revivals, we've moved away from it. Or we have an idea of a revival. It's just a a, a meeting house that you set up and you see this church is having revival meetings. What we mean by revival is a deepening of the work of the Holy Spirit so that you can see and behold the glory of Christ in a greater way, and you want to worship. And in the life of the non-believer, they want to believe and follow. You might think of it as a thumbprint. Right now, if you're a believer, you've got the Holy Spirit like a thumbprint upon you pressing Christ. And revival is when He presses down in a deeper way so that you experience more of Jesus. And that's what we want to pray for in our church, in our community. Now, we've given you a card this morning explaining these things, and on the back of it is how to pray. Our desire is that our entire church is praying for God to work in very specific ways, all centered around a belief that it is the proclamation and experience of the greatness of Christ that transforms lives. So simply put, please pray. In your small groups, in your Wednesday night groups, at home, in your family devotionals, please don't just throw this card away. 
please pray very specifically for God to work in those areas in the life of our church. Amen? Okay. Father, thank you so much um, that you are God because of our sin that dwells in darkness. Thank you, Father, for piercing, penetrating the darkness of this world with the glory of the Son. Thank you, Father, that you came into our hearts by faith with your Holy Spirit. Father, and we want to know more of that and experience more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together again. Before we sing our final song, I want to read us something we've been talking about calling a lot today.